Hello, and welcome to Scary to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. It's a terrifying time right now, everyone. I don't need to tell you that. This is a place of escapism. I've always said that. But to any of you who have been touched by tragedy recently, or even to my fellow countrymen who are just so fucking sick and tired and angry, I know nothing I can say here will really help, and that you're also sick of thoughts and prayers. So I hope I can provide you with just a small portion of time where you can go somewhere else other than your own head. I love you. One very incredibly minute thing I can give you is an ad-free episode. So just sit back, relax, and focus on the scares. Also, stay tuned for after the episode for a trailer from the High Crime Podcast. These ladies so lovingly asked me to be a guest recently, and I could not have been happier. I had such a great time recording with them. Please go check out that episode. You'll see it. I think it happened. I think it's two episodes ago for them. Um, You can also check out my guest narrations on the latest episode of the podcast, Let's Not Meet, which was also just such a treat to do. Now, on with the show. This first story is called The Haunted Telephone by Elliot O'Donnell. Dr. Mike Byrne did not take number Barnfield Terrace Bexel without being warned. It's not a pleasant house, his friend Ross remarked when he told him he contemplated taking it. Some years ago, a doctor named Oldfield who lived in it disappeared very mysteriously, and ever since then, people have declared the place is haunted. Moonshine, Byrne ejaculated. There aren't such things as ghosts. Possibly, his friend continued. But still, for all that, there is something decidedly queer about the house, and I advise you not to take it. That settled Byrne. When given advice, he always acted in the exact opposition to it. And in this instance, he went off at once to the estate agent's office and took number Barnfield Terrace on a three years lease. Ten days later, his brass plate shone conspicuously on the front door. He had settled in. Shortly afterwards, at about 9 p.m. on October 31st, he was sitting in front of his study fire, smoking, whilst Bob, a wire-haired Irish terrier, his sole companion, lay on the floor by his side. The night was stormy. Every now and then a gust of wind beat the rain against the window panes, howled dismally in the chimney and set the door of the room jarring. Otherwise the house was very still. Suddenly, during the lull in the elements, Bob gave a low and ominous growl and moved nearer to burn. The next moment, the telephone bell in the far corner of the room started ringing. Yes, Byrne remarked. Who's that? Mrs. Delacourt, was the reply in an agitated voice. 
the voice of a woman. Is that the doctor? <laughs> yes, Byrne responded. What can I do for you? Come at once, Mrs. Delacourt said. Something dreadful has happened. What is your address? Byrne asked. Oh, you know, Mrs. Delacourt said impatiently. The blue stones, just before you get to Sedley, do be... An abrupt silence. And Byrne realized she had been cut off. She did not ring again, but Byrne had already made up his mind, and he would go to the Blue Stones without delay. Sedley was a little village about four miles to the northwest of Bexel, and as there were very few big houses in its immediate vicinity, he felt he could not fail to find the house to which he had been summoned. It was not in the telephone book, which was rather queer, as he got the impression that Mrs. Delacourt was phoning from the Blue Stones, the scene of the trouble. It did not take him long to thrust a stethoscope and a few surgical implements into his pockets, so that in a very few minutes from the time he received the summons, he was on his motor bicycle, speeding along the wet and storm-swept streets, the wind buffeting and the rain almost blinding him. Fortunately, however, there was little traffic about, and he was soon well on the road to Sedley. When he was about a mile or so from the village, he slackened speed, and looked on either side of the road for the bluestone. The rain had now ceased, and the moon, emerging behind dense masses of scurrying clouds, shone everywhere with a cold, white light. Presently, he espied through the trees on one side of the road a dimly lighted house, and a few yards farther on a carriage drive leading to it. The bluestones, in black lettering, was plainly visible on the white wooden gate that opened onto the drive, and joyfully Byrne dismounted. His joy, however, was short-lived. As he opened the gate and began to wend his way along the drive, he became conscious of an extraordinary sense of loneliness and depression, and he felt it growing more and more pronounced the farther he advanced. The house looked dismal enough, being in total darkness save for the hall and one room on the ground floor. Now, Byrne was not naturally inquisitive, and he had never purposely played the part of an eavesdropper or spy, but something, some strange influence he was utterly at a loss to account for, or explain, suddenly made him approach the window of the lighted room on tiptoe and cautiously peer in. What he saw thrilled him to the core. In the center of the room, which was apparently a study, for the walls of it were lined with bookshelves, and there was a large bureau in one corner, stood an ottoman, and on it lay an elderly man in evening shoes. He appeared to be asleep. A woman, also in evening dress, was bending over him, with one hand resting on his head. She stood with her back to the window, and seemed to be looking at the man's head very intently. She remained in this attitude for some moments, as if debating some very weighty problem, and then suddenly began to smooth and arrange the man's hair. The action puzzled Byrne because it did not seem to be dictated by affection. Indeed, there was something in the woman's attitude and bearing that made him think she regarded the man on the sofa merely as an object of curiosity. Judging by her figure, he had not yet seen her face, she seemed very young. 
wondering what the relationship between the two was and if she were the Mrs. Delacourt who had rung him up, Byrne walked to the front door and rapped. After the lapse of some seconds, he heard the tapping of heels upon the bare boards, and on the front door being opened, he found himself confronted by the woman he had seen through the window. He knew her at once by her dress and figure. She was tall and slight, with yellow hair, bobbed, and eyebrows a la Greta Garbo. Twenty-two or three at the most, she had small, delicate features and lovely teeth, and eyes set just far enough apart to render them peculiarly attractive. It was a very pretty face, and would have been perfect but for the thinness of the lips and hardness about the eyes that was not, however, always apparent. She was dressed in blue, to enhance, of course, the color of her eyes, and her hands were beautiful. The fingers long and tapering, the nails almond-shaped and perfectly manicured. Byrne always looked at people's hands, not only because they indicate health or the reverse, but because he believed they indicate good or bad character. And this woman's hands instantly arrested his attention. They seemed healthy enough, but the nails were too curved, too reminiscent of the talons of some bird or beast of prey. They suggested cruelty, and, in this respect, harmonized unpleasantly with the thinness of the lips, and the occasional metallic-like glitter of the china-blue eyes. Oh, do come in, doctor, she said in a trembling voice. I'm beside myself with trouble. When I came home from golf about an hour ago, I found my husband lying on the ottoman in the study in what seemed to be a fit, and he has not recovered. Do you mean to say he is dead? Byrne asked. Yes, she sobbed, holding her handkerchief to her eyes. He died just before I phoned you. It was terrible. The servants are all out, and I am all alone in the house. Please come in and see him. Crossing the hall as she spoke, she led Byrne into the room he had already seen through the window. There he is, she whispered, catching Byrne by the arm and pointing to the sofa. Tell me right away. It was apoplexy, wasn't it? Byrne went up to the sofa and examined the man. As Mrs. Delacourt had surmised, he was dead, and the flushed and swollen face and neck and the protruding eyes, which were wide open and staring, were certainly consistent with the symptoms of apoplexy. Moreover, the man had the short, thick neck that is so general among middle-aged apoplectics. How old was your husband, Mrs. Delacourt? Byrne asked. Fifty... Mrs. Delacourt replied. His father died of apoplexy when he was just about the same age. I was always afraid lest Alfred should share a similar fate. Apoplexy is hereditary, isn't it? It very often does run in families, Byrne replied. Was your husband abstemious? Not very, Mrs. Delacourt said. I wouldn't say a word against him because he was the kindest and best husband possible. Here she broke off and once again applied a tiny lace handkerchief to her eyes. 
A delicious whiff of some very subtle perfume came with it. There will be no need for a post-mortem or inquest, will there? She went on. After a brief pause. Will you make all the arrangements for the funeral and tell me when it will be? I want it to be as quiet as possible. Byrne looked at her curiously. She had apparently been weeping, but there was no moisture in her eyes and no grief in her voice. Anxiety only was apparent, and once again he got the impression, this time more poignantly than before, that she had not cared one iota for the dead man. Bending down, he examined the body more closely and peered into the blue, sightless eyes. You will, of course, certify that he died a natural death, Mrs. Delacourt observed. And Byrne was about to reply in the affirmative when something he saw quite by chance in the mirror on the wall opposite him made him pause. It was a reflection of Mrs. Delacourt's face. She was staring at the dead man's head with an expression of intense fear and anxiety. In an instant, Byrne's mind reverted to the scene he had witnessed from the garden, and yielding to a sudden impulse, he bent over the dead man's head and brushed the hair apart with his hand. On the top of the skull was a bald patch, and in the center of it was a small purple mark about the size and shape of a pin's head. He examined it closely. Then, this time, purposely, he glanced at the mirror, and what he saw in it almost startled him. Mrs. Delacourt's eyes, fixed on him, were dilated with terror, whilst her lips and cheeks were absolutely white. He swung round and confronted her. What were you looking at? she faltered. Only this, Byrne said quietly pointing at the purple spot on the dead man's head. I should like to examine it more carefully by daylight. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Mrs. Delacourt asked, without, however, approaching any nearer to the body. He always had a spot there. Perhaps, Byrne replied. Anyhow, I will call tomorrow morning. You will give the necessary certificate, then. That depends, Byrne responded. If I am satisfied your husband died from natural causes, of course I will. You surely don't think there's any doubt about that, do you? Was the quick retort. There shouldn't be, Byrne replied evasively, but I can express no opinion till tomorrow. As he moved toward the door, Mrs. Delacourt approached him and placing a hand lightly on his arm, looked up into his face appealingly from under her long, dark lashes. Doctor, she said, must you go? I am terrified at being left all alone with this body. I keep fancying I hear noises, footsteps in the hall and on the staircase and the surreptitious opening and shutting of doors. Do please stay till the servants come in. 
They won't be long. Byrne glanced at his watch. It was half past ten. I will stay till eleven, he said. But I can't stay longer, as one of my patients is in a very bad way, and I may have to go to him at any moment. I won't ask you to stay after eleven, Mrs. Delacourt said. The maids are sure to be back by then. Come into the dining room and have a whiskey and soda. Byrne was nothing loth. After a hard day's work, he was feeling somewhat exhausted, and a drink before setting out on the return journey would doubtless buck him up for the renewal of his battle with the elements, which just then seemed very boisterous. Indeed, as he followed Mrs. Delacourt into the hall, the wind wailed dismally around the house and set all the windows rattling. A feeling of intense eeriness now came over him. There was something in the atmosphere of the whole place, something in the gloom of the old oak staircase that struck him as intensely ghostly. It was all so still, and there were so many strange shadows on the floor and walls that, skeptic as he was with regard to the so-called supernatural, he felt that here he might imagine anything. He was not at all surprised now that Mrs. Delacourt did not like being in the house alone. He studied her minutely as she tripped across the hall in front of him. How slight she was, and yet how perfectly proportioned. What small, daintily shod feet that somehow seemed to make no noise. And what lovely arms and hands. She wouldn't long remain a widow, of that he was sure. This is the dining room, she said, opening a door and turning towards him with an arch smile. Go in and make yourself at home while I fetch the siphon and whiskey. She stepped back as she spoke, and Byrne strode into the room. To his amazement, however, the door slammed to after him, and he heard the key turn in the lock. Dr. Byrne... Mrs. Delacourt called out from the hall. Will you write me that certificate? There's a pen and ink on the table, and directly as it is written, I will let you out. What? Byrne cried out, almost too dumbfounded to speak. You would coerce me into signing a death certificate. I never heard of such a thing. It is outrageous. Mad. You will stay there till you do it. Mrs. Delacourt said. I won't, Byrne shouted. I'll burst open the door. (gasps) Try, Mrs. Delacourt laughed. It's solid oak, and there's nothing in the room to help you. She had lied to him. The room was no dining room. It was either a boot or lumber room. There was no furniture whatsoever in it but a bamboo table and a wicker chair. No grate, no chimney, and only one small window, which was barred. He was, indeed, nicely fooled. Well? Mrs. Delacourt called out. Are you satisfied, and have you changed your mind? The moment you write me a certificate saying my husband died of apoplexy, you go free. Otherwise, you stay where you are. A certificate obtained under such conditions would have no value, 
Burn fumed. And why not, pray? Mrs. Delacour asked. Because, Byrne retorted, the police would soon be on your track. Meaning you would tell them? Mrs. Delacourt laughed. Oh, oh no, you wouldn't, Dr. Byrne. You wouldn't be such a fool. Besides, I might have a tale to tell. I might say, for instance, that you are in love with me, and that you... You killed my husband, hoping to marry me, and that when I found out what you had done and threatened to expose you, you tried to throw the guilt on me. My story would carry just as much weight as yours. Come, be sensible. Let us be friends. Write me that certificate, and I will not only set you free at once, but I will write you a check. I am not open to bribery, you devil, Byrne shouted. I know now you murdered your husband, and I'll have you arrested the moment I get free. To this, there was no reply, only a laugh. Byrne looked round for something to hammer the door with. There was absolutely nothing. He threw himself with all his might against it. But he might as well have hurled himself against a stone wall. As Mrs. Delacourt had intimated, it was of solid oak. Besides, the lock was inset, and it opened on the inside. He tested the window bars, pulling at them with all his might, but they remained firmly fixed in their sockets. Baffled in his attempts to get out, he threw himself in the wicker chair and swore. A mocking laugh from the hall told him he was overheard. Presently, Mrs. Delacourt spoke. <laughs> Once again, Dr. Byrne, will you give me that certificate? No, Byrne said angrily. I will not. Remember... This is your last chance. Byrne made no response, and she did not speak again. Some minutes later, he heard sounds outside, as if heavy articles were being dragged across the hall and piled against the door. Then came the smell of burning. At first, he took little notice of it, but it soon became so pronounced that he got up and went to the door. Listening, he could plainly hear the crackling of kindling, while the smell of burning became stronger every moment. He shouted, Mrs. Delacourt! But there was no reply. Just silence, broken only by the sound of burning wood and the fitful moaning and wailing of the wind. The devil, he ejaculated. She set fire to the house. Mad with terror, he hurled himself again and again against the door. But all to no purpose. He made no impression on it. Meanwhile, the flames hissed and roared, and the smell of burning became insufferable. At last, the door itself caught fire. 
Burn, screaming for help, retreated to the window. The flames slowly but persistently followed him. Several times he tried to pass by them, but failed, the blinding heat invariably driving him back. Finally, as a last resource, he again sought the window. He seized the bars and shook them till all his strength went. The heat was now hellish. He couldn't breathe. His very lungs seemed on fire. He tried to scream, but his throat was dried up. The flames were now on him, licking his legs. His clothes caught on fire, and a frightful pain shot through his limbs. He put up his hands to screen his scorching eyeballs. And then, suddenly, all became dark, and he knew no more. When he recovered, to his unmitigated surprise, he was sitting in front of the fire in his own study, with Bob lying placidly by his side. A dream, he said aloud. And yet, damn it, it couldn't have been a dream. It was all so deuce realistic. What do you think, Bob? Bob raised his head and, glancing in the direction of the telephone, snarled. The following day, quite by chance, Byrne ran into Ross. He told him his experience, and Ross, far from treating the matter lightly, regarded the whole thing very seriously. It was not a dream. I wish to goodness it was. Listen, last night was the anniversary both of the disappearance of Dr. Oldfield and the burning of the Bluestones. The Delacortes, who were then living at the Bluestones, were in the house when the fire occurred, and Mr. Delacourt was believed to have perished in it. At all events, Mrs. Delacourt, who escaped, declared certain charred remains found in the ruins were his. No one, of course, connected Dr. Oldfield's disappearance in any way with the fire, but your experience last night throws an altogether different light on both events. You're quite sure you never heard of the Delacourts before last night. Positive, Byrne said emphatically, and I agree with you now, it was no dream. At least no dream in the ordinary sense. By some strange ordination of the powers behind the scenes, I was, for the time being, Oldfield. I acted as he acted and suffered his fate. It could not have been otherwise. Have you any idea what subsequently became of that devil incarnate? Mrs. Delacourt. Yes, Ross replied slowly and with a pallid face. She married my boy Ralph last year. They are living in Nice. This next story is called The Ohio Love Sculpture by Adobe James. My hobby, indeed, 
My very life is erotica. I possess 15,000 pieces in my fire and burglar-proofed library, many of them dating back to before the time of Christ. I've traveled over 2 million miles and spent in excess of $3,500,000 on my library acquisitions. I've spent a like amount of time and money on erotic art. Fantastic? Oh no, my friend, not fantastic at all, for erotica is an expensive hobby. An example, once I had an entire wall of a Cambodian cave removed, created, and shipped halfway around the world to me in New York. It is the pride of my collection today. A little cleaning here and there, the proper lighting, brought out hidden details of the figures on the wall. When one enters my darkened museum and the lights rise slowly, the viewer is greeted with an explosion of color and hundreds of panels showing figures conjoined in every conceivable expression of love. It's so effective that many other connoisseurs, caught in the hypnotic grip of my cave wall panorama, swear the figures become animated if one looks at them long enough. You may wonder at my preoccupation with erotica. It's really quite simple. Erotica is the one art form that has remained unchanged through all of mankind's recorded history. Heroes and saviors have come and gone. Civilizations, races, and countries have risen and fallen. Religions, political beliefs, and fads are born, grow, and die in the dusts of history. Mountains, snowcaps, and deserts spring up in the face of the earth, and the seas lick inwards with tongues a hundred miles long. One thing remains constant. Erotica. You see, this constancy in erotic artifacts from Mesopotamia, Egypt, Anatolia, Phoenicia, Persia, India, China, Japan, Australia, Polynesia, Africa, Greece, Italy, and the Americas, its immutability is comforting. Invariably, I am asked the difference between pornography and erotica. It is a question that has no answer, for if one has to ask it, he can never understand the answer. At best, all I can say is that pornography is pornography. Erotica is... Erotica. There's as much difference between the two as there is between a rare vintage wine and the sour red eye that is sold in bulk to the peasants. It is unfortunate that we have uncultured idiots in our American judicial system who cannot differentiate between the two. Take, for instance, their actions towards the Ohio love sculpture. I first learned of the Ohio art from Ali S. Rayem, a member of the Turkish legation in New York. How he had gotten wind of the sculpture, I never discovered, but Ali was a collector, and we all have our informants. I well remember that evening. Harold Cabot, Ali, and myself were dining together at the club. Harold had just finished telling us of his new acquisition, a copy of Shakespeare's Selected Sonnets for Gentlemen. Reputedly, there are only seven copies of this book in existence. Modestly, I can report that two of them are in my library. But I digress. 
Ali had been absent-minded most of the evening. When he failed to respond enthusiastically to the story, Harold, slightly miffed, turned to the Turk and asked tartly, And what have you purchased lately? Ali sighed, his huge frame quivering with the expulsion of breath. <sighs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. I tried to buy, but they were not for sale. I felt my nerve ends tingling as my collector's instincts began sniffing the wind. I glanced at Harold. He was sitting as though he were relaxed, but his dilated nostrils gave him away. Ollie continued as if it pained him to recount the experience. I suspected it a hoax. After all, what possible thing of worth could be found in a town called Amboy in your agricultural state of Ohio? But I went, nevertheless, because of my informant's reputation. The people of Amboy were almost as backward as the restless tribesmen in our Agri Doggy region. I went to the address given, walked across a barnyard full of indescribably dirty pigs and chickens, and knocked on the door. There was no answer. I knocked again. Then I went into the barn. Ali drew deeply on his cigar. His eyes narrowed at thought. And there they were. They were what? Harold interjected impatiently. Ollie's eyebrows shot up. Why, the Ohio love sculpture, of course. He ground out his cigar and leaned forward. His voice lowered. They were beautiful. Exquisite. Perfect. Three of them, laid out on a velvet bedspread in anticipatory positions. One with her legs. Ali used his hands as he described the statuary. The figures were of three young women, sculptured out of some unknown substance that has the same hue as Carrara marble tinted by one of the Maniacelli artisans. The expressions, their full lips tightened in desire and eagerness, their taut stomach muscles, the extended thigh tendons all gave off an unbelievable aura of sensualism. I couldn't move for a minute, Ali said, perspiring now. I've seen the 30th cave of Ahanta, the tomb room of Akina Aphrodite before it collapsed, the Latrec and the Gauguin collections, and none of them, nothing, could compare to these Ohio works. He looked apologetic and added for emphasis, not even your cave wall, Andrew. Go on, I said softly, not really believing they could be that good, but nonetheless mentally calculating how long it would take me to get to Ohio. Harold was ominously silent. He would be in the race, too. Ali pursed his lips and grimaced. I stepped forward to touch them, and I heard a gun click behind me. I whirled around, and there was the sculptor, a dirty, wild-eyed genius in bib overalls. He said nothing, but his gun spoke an international language. We stared at each other for a minute, and then I said, My name is Ali Ryan. I am with the Turkish legation in New York. I pulled my credentials out of my pocket, 
He never took his eyes from my face. I told him his sculpture was the most beautiful I had ever seen. He did not react to the compliment. Then I asked him how much he wanted for them. He spoke for the first time in a viciously spectral voice, he said. They are not for sale. Go now or I will kill you. In spite of his threat, I tried to bargain with him. Not even for, uh, uh 25,000? The man shook his head and raised the gun. I offered him a hundred thousand while backing towards the door. The gun was shoved into my stomach. A hundred and fifty thousand, I shouted, as I moved out of the barn. Again, the man answered in that same hollow voice. They are not for sale. Ollie looked at Harold and myself. I pride myself in knowing men. This was a madman, a genius, and possibly one of the greatest sculptors the world has ever known. But a madman, and he will not sell, ever. You should know that I tried again the next morning, offering a certified check for $165,000. He shot over my head. I came home. That was a week ago. I have not slept since that time. Those beautiful, beautiful statues, gathering dust in a chicken barn. Harold, complaining of a sudden, blinding headache, excused himself a few moments later, and almost ran in his haste to get out of the room. I fear I was equally impolite to my old friend, leaving a woebegone Ali sitting, staring at his dead cigar and half-finished brandy. I had no doubt that Harold would attempt to beat me to Ohio, so I did the most expedient thing and chartered a jet. Three and a half hours after I had left Ali, my plane landed at Lebanon, Ohio. Another 45 minutes passed and I was at the location. A cold, eerie wind was blowing through the stubbles of the cornfield when I walked across the dirt road and approached the house. Even though it was long after midnight, one solitary light burned upstairs. The house itself was in a state of disrepair. A broken old chair on the front porch had springs sticking out of it like serpents, peering from the hair of Medusa. A storm shutter swung aimlessly to and fro on one rusted hinge, and the shredded tar paper on the roof flapped noisily with each dusty gust of wind. I knocked. After a long while, there were halting steps inside, and the door creaked open, and I saw the sculptor, just as Ali had described him. Smaller, dirtier, perhaps, with a smell about him, but undoubtedly the same man, and undoubtedly insane. I introduced myself and said, I have come to see the sculpture. Get out of here, he snarled. They are not for sale. His face had twisted into a grotesque mask of hatred. He brought the shotgun into sight. I had expected this and had planned accordingly. I held up one hand beseechingly. Of course they aren't for sale. They are works of art, made by a genius, and one would not bargain or barter over something 
as priceless as they. The remark was, colloquially speaking, corny. It was meant to be. It stopped him. The hatred was replaced by another look. One of uncertainty, he cocked his head to one side and questioned. You mean... you... You aren't going to try and take them away from me? No, I lied. I've heard of their beauty, their perfection, and have come to pay homage to the man who made them. No normal person would have accepted the remark at face value, but animal-like, the old man was listening to my tone of voice and not what I was actually saying. He looked into my face for a few minutes and then slowly lowered his gun. Tears began running down both sides of his hawk-like nose. Everyone who's seen my lovelies has tried to steal or buy or take them away from me. He stared at me pathetically, a weary and footsore Diogenes wanting to lay down his lantern. Disregarding the stench, I put my arm around his shoulders. Are they really as beautiful as I've heard? The old man was eager for me to see them now. He held the hurricane lamp high as we trotted across the barnyard, casting weird shadows behind us. He turned when we reached the barn door. Close your eyes, he said. The lights have to be just right at night, you know. Ah, here was a true connoisseur, I thought. One who knows exactly what has to be done to show the artwork off to its best advantage. I heard him moving around for a second. And then, almost bashfully, he said, Come in. The light fell upon the sculpture. Involuntarily, my breath left my body. The sensual power of the figures was a tangible thing that gripped me with a steel fist in the abdomen. In all my years of collecting, there had never been anything like this. Surely, I thought, my acquisitions had led me to this moment. And these would be the climax of my collection. There had never been anything so powerfully beautiful, so sexually realistic before, and there would never be anything to compare with these again. You must understand my feelings in this matter. Not since I was a very young man and susceptible to the more sensual aspects of erotica has anything influenced me the way the statues did. My throat was dry with desire, and my heart hammered inside its cavity like a wild, frightened beast lunging against the bars of an insufferable cage. I cannot say how long I stood there reveling in its beauty, but finally my self-control regained command of my itinerant mind. I would sell my soul, give millions to have these statues, and I felt sorrow for their creator. For I knew I would not hesitate to kill for them, either. I began talking to him again. I made thrust after thrust in that shadowy, fearful desert of his paranoid mind. I kept hammering away for almost an hour, always on the same theme, that there were those people plotting to take the statues away from him. 
Finally, he was weeping futilely in the corner, looking like a wide-eyed, frightened child. It was time for the coup d'etat. I bit my lips and said haltingly, Of course, if you weren't here, and the statues weren't here, if they were put in some secret hiding place, and you guarded them. He jumped up. Yes! Yes, that's it! I'll hide them! I shook my head. No, they'll follow you. But if I helped you find a place, a long way from here, maybe in New York. The sculptor fell on his knees and clutched my pants beseechingly. Please, please help me. Tell me where to go. All right, I said, as if reaching some noble conclusion. I'll make arrangements for you to hide them in a secret museum. His eyes narrowed slightly and I added, Of course, you'll have to watch them day and night because they'll be your responsibility. The remark quashed any feelings of doubt the old man may have had. Our arrangements were complete just as dawn was breaking. We carefully loaded the sculpture in the farm's dilapidated old pickup truck. He would bring them to New York, arriving at my place within 72 hours. The next three days would seem an eternity to me, but my only other alternative would be to take them myself, and this would arouse the old man's suspicions. As the sculptor blew out the lantern, I took my last look at three figures in the back of the truck. In the soft light of the new day, the expressions on the girls' faces had taken on a look of happy satiation. Then we covered them with blankets and an old tarp. I left the old man a few minutes later and returned to New York. The next three days were spent in feverish anticipation. I purchased red velvet Roman couches for the figures and rearranged the museum to make room for them. They would be in the corner, about 25 feet from the wall paintings, would serve as a grand soul-sucking climax for my guests. When the telephone rang that evening of the third day, I felt a fleeting moment of panic, as I thought it might be the sculptor. It was Harold Cabot. His voice sounded odd. I've been meaning to call you and offer congratulations. Ah, uh, <laughs> You heard. It was impossible to keep the happiness and pride out of my voice. No, but when the sculpture wasn't there when I arrived, I surmised you had beaten me again. I smiled and felt pity for poor Harold. I also felt relief to know the old man had gotten away safely. The horrible foreboding struck me when Harold next spoke. I just wanted to say that I'm sorry. Sorry? Sorry for what? Well, he seemed very uncertain over the telephone. Haven't you seen the newspapers this afternoon? 
No? The strangled shout was forced out of my suddenly aching throat. What have they got to do with me? There was a long silence on the other end of the phone. I could hear him, breathing. Then, Harold's voice was indescribably sad when he said, It's all there. On the front page. About the old man in the Ohio sculpture. He was involved in a minor accident and the police discovered the statues. I heard him swallow. Andrew. They... The police are going to destroy the sculpture. Destroy? God, no! No, no, no! Why should they do something idiotic like that? It isn't pornography. What police? I'll call them. I'll have the governor- No. Andrew. It wouldn't do any good. Why not- You fool! These statues are art! Do you hear me? I was almost screaming. They're art! They can't destroy them. They belong to me and the sculptor. Harold's voice seemed to come from a long way off and my mind backed away into some dark corner, screaming impotent exorcisms at his words. And when I said nothing, he repeated the statements again. Sculptor? Oh, no. Andrew. The old man wasn't a sculptor. He was a taxidermist. story of the evening is called Dulcie by Hugh Reed. The narrow streets are filled with the wine of sirens. The sky is smeared red as though stained with blood. The lights are out in London for England is at war. He is a small, furtive man, and he slips through the streets quietly. He is dressed in black, a shabby, worn-at-the-elbows suit. His face is pale, and his eyes have shrunk back into his head. He carries a gladstone bag, which he clutches tightly to him. He is looking for something. Someone. Now and then he pauses to glance around him. He stands in a street corner doorway, waiting. The girl is chubby and inelegant. She comes hurrying down the street. Her heels clatter on the pavement. His breath quickens as she approaches. He puts his little bag down in the corner of the doorway and steps out onto the pavement, catching her arm. She's wearing a cheap white raincoat which takes on a mottled appearance as the blood seeps through it. He pulls her body into the doorway and kneels down beside her to open his bag. 
he takes out a strip of velvet and a small meat axe. He works quickly and quietly, and when he has done what has to be done, he wraps up his things in the velvet cloth and replaces it in the bag. He then pads away into the night. The blood trickles down over the white raincoat and forms a puddle on the doorstep, mingling with the dust. Then it drips onto the pavement and gradually spreads across it. The warden runs down the street, not looking where he is going, and trips over something soft and bulky. He falls to the pavement and curses as he does so, and when he climbs to his feet, he finds that his clothes are damp and sticky, and his hands clammy. He takes out his torch and flashes it into the doorway. He sees the thing in the white raincoat, and at first his eyes reject what he sees, but his senses cannot reject the damp that is seeping through his clothes, and he begins to feel a little sick. He takes off his coat and puts it over the thing, and somehow gets more blood on his shirt and arms as he does so. As an afterthought, he folds its arms across its chest. In the morning, the shopkeeper washes down his front step and tries to pretend that nothing has happened. It is unfortunate for him because he is a butcher, and some of his customers have a grisly sense of humor. There it is for them to see, the chalky mark where it sat against his doorway, the door itself freshly washed down by his wife. The police come and go, but there is little that they can do. There is nothing for them there because the job has been well done. They wander in and out of the butcher's shop and scratch their heads and hold conferences and all with a note of something like despair in their voices. They know that the streets will be empty again that night and he will be walking through them as he has been every night for a week. That somewhere he will meet a girl that another hacked body will be sitting on another shop step for them to find and tidy up in the morning. They stand around the doorway and shake their heads. It must be a loony, says one. Who else but a loony would do a thing like this? How many of those are there in London? Hundreds. We must find him soon. How do we even start looking for him? Tell me that. Well, he's got what he's taken, hasn't he? A ruddy great collection of them. Nice to be a collector, eh? Must be a bit smelly around his way by this time. Someone is going to sniff him out before long. Standing, talking is about all they really can do. That and wait around for someone to bump into him whilst he's in action. Dulcie is a night girl. She comes to life when the lights go down. She stands in her room and looks at her reflection in the mirror. Her skin is creased and puckered around her cheekbones. Skin that prickles in the night. Eyes that flaunt in the darkness. Her tawny hair, tired hair, that does not shine in the candlelight. Falls around her sagging breasts as she stretches her plasticine white arms above her head. 
She poses there, enjoying herself in the flattering light of a candle. She lowers her arms and sits on the edge of her bed, and her loneliness engulfs her. Her room is sparsely furnished and she knows no one in the city. The sound of the siren is almost welcome to her because it gives her a chance to go out on the streets and along to the shelter where she knows there will be other people and she will no longer be alone. She puts her things together into a bag, a few things to see her through the night. She pulls her coat around her and straightens her hair. She blows out the candle and closes the door behind her, then clatters down the stairs. There is a little man on the landing. He is holding a small gladstone bag, and his face is pale and furtive. As she comes down the stairs, he opens his bag and fumbles inside, and she is suddenly afraid. She wonders if the other flat dwellers have already left, if she is alone with him. She is annoyed with herself for being afraid, for imagining that the little man is waiting for her. But she makes up her mind quickly and pauses on the stair to call back over her shoulder. I'll wait for you downstairs, John. The little man hesitates, and she moves past him quickly. She smiles at him as she passes, and she has to restrain a shudder at the longing in his eyes as he gazes at her. They seem to glow in the darkness. She holds herself back from panicking and carries on down the stairs as though she were not afraid. But she does not regret calling out to the mythical John. She is conscious of a great sense of relief when she reaches the hallway below and escapes through the doorway to the street. She is not aware of the soft padding of the little man's feet on the stairs as he follows her. She walks slowly down the street, regaining her confidence in herself. It is pitch black, but she is not afraid. She knows where she is going. She's out in the open and no longer alone. Nothing can happen to her. She has only to cry out and someone will hear her. The little man with the gladstone bag slips out in the street. He hears her walking away from him. He clutches his bag tightly and scuttles along in her wake. She turns down a side street and is halfway along it before she hears the first footfall. Somehow she knows that she is being followed. She remembers his face on the landing and the hunger in his eyes, and she feels fear creep over her. And yet, she must keep cool. She must keep walking until she finds someone to protect her. She must pretend that she is not aware that he is following her. She keeps her eyes fixed on him, on the paving stones and her ears alert for any noise behind her. The sounds are unmistakable, the soft pattering of feet. She quickens her step, and they quicken. She slows, and they stop. She panics. She begins to run, twisting and turning this way and that. She wants to cry out, but something holds her back. A cry will only tell him where she is. She thinks that if she runs fast enough, far enough, then she may elude the little man with the hungry eyes. She runs on and on through the darkness from one unfamiliar street to the next till at last she has to stop. Out of breath, 
She stands in a shop doorway. She has shaken him off. There's no sound of following footsteps. She leans against the door, and her breath comes in sobs. Dulcie is afraid. She is lost. The streets are empty. Her panic has carried her from the area she knows to some other place. She does not know what to do. She is afraid to stay where she is, and she is afraid to move in case the little man should find her. She stands in the doorway and trembles, fingers of fear tugging at her mind. Yet she must go to a shelter. She peers out of the doorway. She can see no one. She steps into the street. It is totally dark, and the sound of her footsteps as she walks along it are the only disturbance of the stillness. She is almost at the corner of the street when she feels a hand upon her arm and she looks down into his small, sly face and lifts her hand to claw at his eyes. She feels the axe cleave into her side as his hand closes over her mouth to stifle her scream. She feels a terrible, gutting pain as he chops at her body again and again, and she is suddenly aware that she is dead. And yet, she can still see the small, sweating hands that grip the axe as he severs her head at the third attempt. He brings out a fish knife. He picks her head from her shoulders delicately, sneaking through the loose threads of sinew and muscle as neatly as he can, running caressing fingers through her hair. He takes up a roll of velvet cloth and wraps it round her head. He puts the fish knife and the axe back into the bag, and the velvet bundle is placed on top of them. So you'll be comfy, love, he whispers in her ear. But she sees only the velvet that covers her face as he does up the clasp of the bag. The little man sets off walking, and the bag swings against his side. Every time he takes a step, the bag slaps his thigh, and Dulcie jogs a little inside. Her head slips round in the bag, so that the blood from her neck streams up into her nose. She feels blood and bile in her throat, and there's nothing she can do about it. In her death pain, she has bitten through her tongue. You ought to be in the shelter, sir. The little man stops nervously as the policeman looms over him. I, I lost my way. Easy enough to do, I'm sure. If you'd like to walk along with me, sir, I'll make sure you get there safely. Thank you, officer. The little man in the black suit with the pale face and the shrunken eyes pads along beside the large policeman. Got what you need with you, sir? In the bag, officer. Dulcie feels blood flooding through her ears and trickling amongst her tawny locks. 
roughly chopped off where the axe bit through her neck. The little man clatters down the stairs into the shelter, and Dulcie bounces at every movement. How's it going, Fred? Hitler hasn't got me yet. He sits down on a bench beside his friend and starts to talk. Dulcie can only vaguely hear what they are saying. The velvet is pressed close against her wide open eyes and blood is running from the sockets. Got your little bag, I see. Oh, yes. Never see you without your little bag, Fred. Got a fortune in it or something? (laughs) You'd never guess what's in there, mate. Not in a month of Sundays. The little man holds the bag tight against his body as he talks, as though he were wrapping himself around it. Each time he changes posture, he can feel Dulcie move slightly inside the bag, and he finds it very exciting. They find what is left of Dulcie in the early hours of the morning. She isn't a pleasant sight, and the young special constable who finds her is promptly sick in the gutter. Soon, there is a little cluster of police officers in the doorway, all looking down at Dulcie. Her blood trickles round their black heavy boots, wetting the bottoms of their trouser legs. The constable says, There was a little man with her last night. Seemed to be lost. I took him round to the Meep Street shelter. Notice anything special about him? A bit flustered, maybe. I put it down to being lost. He had a bag with him. Could be him, I suppose. Did you recognize him? Never seen him before in my life. Maybe somebody at the shelter might know him. Maybe not. Next time, have a look in the bag first. We can't afford to let this one slip away. So, the convoy of the policemen go around to the shelter. It is almost deserted now, and nobody seems to remember anything about the little man. They go down into the shelter without much hope and take a look around. There's nothing to see. They return to the daylight and stand talking in the entrance to the shelter. It is then that they become aware of the little man watching them. He is wearing a rumpled black suit, and he has a Gladstone bag clasped under his arm. He is standing by a coffee stall and is looking at them with a silly grin spread all over his face. The constable makes a move to cross the street and collar him, but the detective stops him. I'm sure that's him, sir. It is. The detective points after the little man as he trots down the road, and they see the telltale trail of blood spots that drip from his bag. The little man walks jauntily, swinging his bag so that Dulcie rocks to and fro. He turns the corner and comes to a doorway, the doorway. There is a freshly washed look about it, and a chalked shape on the step. He passes it, cheerfully. He turns another corner and stops before his own front door. He takes out his latch key and unlocks it. He climbs the stairs to his room. He hears the doorbell ring gently behind him, but he does not attempt to answer it. He is tired. He had another busy night. As he stands before his room door, he hears a mumble of conversation from below. 
but he pays it no attention. Wearily, he goes inside, closing the door firmly behind him. He opens the bag and lifts the velvet bundle from it. He unwraps it carefully. He takes a flannel and gently sponges away the blood that is clotted over it in the bag. He takes a comb and straightens her hair as best he can. He coos into her ear. He puts Dulcie's head proudly on the mantelpiece with the others. He does not attempt to struggle when he is arrested. They take him away, and he talks 19 to the dozen on the way back to the station. When they get there, the arresting officer is looking a little pale. He goes to the washroom and is quietly sick. Then he goes upstairs to make out his report. He does not quite see how to phrase it. Each time he tries to make a start, he finds the same picture rising before his eyes, and he knows the official language can never be stretched far enough to describe it. He sees the little man sitting in bed with his Bible. It is early morning, and he has just arrived home. The Gladstone bag is upon the table. The fish knife and the meat axe have been cleaned and wrapped neatly in the velvet cloth again. The little man is earnestly reading aloud, and from the mantelpiece, half a dozen pairs of eyes watch him. He is reading to them, for them, for their redemption. At last, he reaches the end. He puts the Bible down. He clambers out of bed and switches off the light. He goes to the mantelpiece, and one by one, he kisses his little friends. Good night. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's stories. It is currently about 2 a.m., and boy, am I ready to get some shut-eye. But first... I would like to do my Patreon shoutouts. My everlasting thanks to Jen F., Bumsu Shane Kim, Leah Shea, Jamie Glasgow, Moezi, and Katie Hashemi. Thank you so much, you beautiful angels. I hope you can feel the hug that I'm sending you. Send any scary stories you've written to scarytosleep at gmail.com to have them featured on the show. Deadline for the kids episode is September 13th. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook, and Tumblr. I think that's all. And please stick around for the high crime trailer. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. If you love the creepy stories on Scary to Sleep and you love supporting women-run podcasts, then... You should check out High Crime. This is the perfect podcast for you. Welcome. Listen as Kayla, that's me, Helene, and Jamie take on some of the grisliest, creepiest, and most bizarre cases, all with a sense of tact and a healthy dose of humor. The topics are troubling, but don't worry, since we tackle our anxiety with the devil's lettuce, how apropos, we'll never leave you without some comic relief, whether it's on purpose or not. Which murders will we cover? What will come out of Helene's mouth next? There's only one way to find out. Check out High Crime on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. We'll be there. We'll be high, and we'll change the way you look at crime. 
or maybe we'll just make you laugh or help you learn a thing or two. Either way, we can promise it will be a good time. Catch ya later, later buds! buds.